Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. This episode is from a sermon J.P. Conway preached on December 8th, 2019. The sermon was on Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. This is the second Sunday of Advent. And for you veterans out there, you know what this means. It's John the Baptist Sunday, so uh, buckle up. Uh, If you want to look to the reading, it's on the inside of our bulletin. And stand with me if you would. We'll read this together. You're welcome to join with me in the bold section if you would like. And we'll read this reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, in the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones... God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The king was coming, and the people were not ready. There were preparations that had to take place. And if you had talked to many of the Jewish elite at that time, they would have said, Of course we're not ready. We need a lot more weapons than these. We need a lot more soldiers than these if we're going to overthrow the Romans. If you'd asked some of the religious elite, they would have said, of course we're not ready. The people are not obeying our thousands of little rules about the Sabbath. Of course we're not ready. But John comes with a very different message of what it means to prepare for the arrival of the king. And John's message about preparedness was that to be prepared is moral preparation, ethical preparation. And it's about how we behave. And John did not believe the people this time were behaving as they should. And we see these stories throughout the gospel. I think the kids are looking at John chapter 2 this morning when it talks about Jesus cleansing the temple. And he did that because so much of the religion at this time was about money and power 
and ignoring the poor, taking advantage of the poor. They were not caring for widows and orphans, but instead they were trying to be prestigious in so many other ways. And John spoke out against this because this was evil. Another well-known story about John is when Herod takes his brother Philip's wife, John will not be silent about this. When the leaders of John's day committed immoral acts, John was not silent. We don't know if others spoke out or not. The only record we have is John speaking out. But he said, it is wrong for you to take your brother's wife. And ultimately, John lost his life over this. It was an evil time, and they were not prepared. Consider our context now. What is our time like? What is the state of your family, your neighborhood, the church, our state, and world? Consider the divisions we have among us. Consider economic situations with the enormous gap between the wealthy and the poor. Consider our education system where the statistics on the amount of elementary school children that are where they need to be in reading and math is far from what it should. Just this past week, there was a tragic situation of some juveniles getting out of the detention center, and you probably saw all the different things that happened, and in so many ways, that sad and tragic story was a microcosm of all that's going on in our world. Families struggling, young people struggling, institutions struggling, and friends, we must do more. What does it mean to be prepared for the arrival of the king? God will judge us if we are not prepared. God judged Jerusalem. God ultimately judged the Roman Empire. And when the scripture says this morning that if we are not prepared for the Lord, we will be judged. Our churches will be judged. And I'm confident if there's any consistency of our God in human history, our country will be judged. If we are not prepared. Friends, I love you too much not to tell you the truth. And we love the scriptures too much not to read them. So let's be clear. There is a coming wrath. There is a coming wrath. But there's good news. Jesus is coming. And Jesus comes to provide a solution. Jesus comes to provide an answer for this judgment that, to be clear, falls upon all of us. And Jesus comes to give us a process of making things right in the world, empowered by His Spirit. Jesus gives us a way to deal with our past, to be faithful in the present, and to be prepared for the future. And forgive the alliteration this morning, but Jesus comes to show us how to repent, how to be a part of the present revival, and to set up reforms so that we can make a difference in the future. And it all begins with repentance. Repentance is all about admitting you are wrong. And taking responsibility for the things you have done. I don't like to admit it when I'm wrong. I have a joke sometimes I tell Spencer we're having a conversation. I always joke and say, I could be wrong, but I doubt it. <laughs> And uh, I don't like to admit I'm wrong, and you probably don't either. I don't like to confess my sin. But if you don't like to admit it when you're wrong, 
Christianity may not be for you. Because it's all about admitting when we're wrong. Repenting. And saying the things I've gotten caught up in, the values, the focus of my life is not what it should have been. And I'm going to take the responsibility. I'm not going to wait. Hey, when everybody else repents, I'll repent too. No. I'm going to repent, even if no one else does. I'm going to take responsibility for what I have done individually, my part in social ills, and I'm going to take responsibilities for that, and I'm going to confess that. I was thinking this morning about the things in my life that are worthy of confession, and I'll give you a few. Nothing too embarrassing. I don't trust you that much, right? I'm not as patient as I need to be. I hope my children don't amen that. Um, but I'm not as patient as I need to be. And there are too many times I'm not proud of how anxiety and stress affects me. And there are times I'm not at my best. And I need to take a walk away and kind of refocus and then come back. I confess that I haven't been as patient as I should have been. I confess that I haven't been as bold as I should have been. I've been thinking about this in recent months, and I think there have been ways that I have failed you as a preacher over the last eight years. Or I have not been as bold about things as I should have been. And, and I confess, I think it's because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of being misunderstood. Our, our world right now gives us these two tracks and, and we can pick either one of these tracks. It's You can think like the proverbial right, or you can think like the proverbial left. There's only choices. And as I've mentioned before, my understanding of the gospel and Christian teaching, it doesn't easily filter to the right or the left of how we think in our world. And there have been times I haven't been as bold as I should have been. Because I was afraid someone was going to think, oh, he's a crazy conservative, or he's a crazy liberal. <coughs> I don't think scripture falls into all those categories. I confess I haven't been as bold as I should have been. I confess in my life I haven't made the alleviation of poverty an essential part of the gospel. To be clear, I was raised by people that always sought to help the poor. But I kind of saw helping the poor as a nice thing to do for extra credit. After you had taken care of living a pious life. Once you had been moral yourself, if you wanted to help the poor and you had time for that, good for you. But I confess it was into my 30s before I saw helping the poor as an essential, non-negotiable part of the gospel that every single person must be about. And I confess that, and I repent of that. I repent of the fact that I've not always been as confrontational as I should have been about fear of the other in our world and prejudice. <coughs> I've not always been as confrontational as I should have been. And I'll give you an example. And I was trying to think of one that's not necessarily in our, what's going on right now. But um, you remember, and it's funny that this is history for our kids. In 2008, when then-Senator uh, then Obama was running for president, it, there was a widespread conspiracy theory. Kids, you might have heard this, you might not. There's a widespread conspiracy that he was really secretly a Muslim. Because of how his name sounded. And this was widespread conspiracy. Barack Obama, that doesn't sound like a good Anglo-Christian name. He must be a secret Muslim. And if we vote this guy president, he's going to turn the country towards Islam. 
And I heard this from all types of people. And I remember having a conversation with a friend one day, and he was like, he's really a secret Muslim. And he was showing me this video. And like, my way of reacting to that was just to kind of like, you have crazy ankles too, right? Like my way of reacting to that was just kind of like a nervous laugh and like, I'm not so sure about that. And then that's kind of weird. And then just kind of changed the subject. And I wish I could go back in time to those moments and say, hey, listen, I know 9-11 was devastating. And it made us all free. And I know none of us want to see something like that happen again. But we can't stereotype 2 billion people because of the actions of a few. And we can't stereotype a gentleman running for president just because of how his last name sounds. Let's trust his actions and words. And he self-identifies as a Christian. Um, let, let's take him at his word and let's let his behavior live that out. I wish I had said that, but I didn't. I just kind of did a nervous laugh and changed the subject. And these are just a few examples of things in my life that I confess and repent of and want to live differently. And I was wrong. We have to be able to admit when we're wrong. As glorious as the church is, and I'm going to talk more about this in a second, we have to be willing to admit when the church is wrong. I'm proud of this country. I love this country. And yet, we have to be able to admit when the country is wrong. And if you are unwilling to admit it when you're wrong, Christianity may not be the faith for you. Now, it goes on from here, from repentance. The next thing we see is that John brings about a revival. I mean, people are streaming out through the wilderness to be with John, to be surrounded by him, and to participate in what he's doing. They're all getting, getting baptized. They're all confessing their sins. And, and there, is, there is a fire. There is an enthusiasm because of what John is doing. And John says, you'll be part of this revival, this movement. I want to see fruit. And fruit is always thought of in Scripture as moral, as ethical, as behavioral. As Paul tells us in, in his letter to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the attributes of the Spirit. And we must go deeper into these things. What does it mean to be a part of a revival? A revival is when... Well, think of it this way. When a friend of yours gets super into a hobby, and they go deeper into that hobby than they've ever gone before, and all they can do is talk about it with their friends. Okay, so you remember when one of your first friends discovered yoga. And all they could talk about was yoga. Maybe it was hot yoga, maybe it was goat yoga, who knows. But like, all, they discovered yoga, and all they talk about, or, or a friend that discovered, let's think of another form of exercise, spin class, or a friend got into knitting, or let's say someone's making their own YouTube videos, okay, or whatever it is, and they get so into that hobby, that's all they can talk about. And you can see in their life the excitement and the joy that they're having because of that. That's what it means to kind of go through a revival. That you get so excited about something, it just kind of takes over. You forget other things that you used to think were important because you're so caught up in this new thing. 
And to be caught up in a Christian revival, a spiritual revival, is to get so caught up in this newfound joy of the faith that it almost bears no resemblance to what you did before. To be a part of a revival is to say, I want to go deeper into the faith than I've ever gone before. And family, this is one of the main questions of Advent. This is one of the main questions at this time of year. Are you willing to go deeper than you've ever gone before? Are you willing to grow closer to the Lord Jesus Christ than ever before? And what is your heart's answer to? Because what we see here with this revival that Jesus started, or that John starts and Jesus continues, is that people are getting sold out. And they're getting caught up into this. And they're going so deep because of this. And, and there's so much virtue that comes from this. I think of a few times that I've seen revival break out. And to be clear, I pray for revival in this church. We've had revival before. I'm convinced that, that back in 2010 when the flood happened and I wasn't here for it. But I think that was a revival in many ways for this church. And the things that came out of that. I meet with a group of ministers regularly in this city. And we're praying for the revival of the city. And when I've seen revival break out in churches, I remember the church of my adolescence. When I was 16, it went through a revival. As they started studying <coughs> the doctrine of grace. And what it meant that we can't earn our salvation. But the Lord Jesus accepts us as we are. And saves us despite of our sin. And they went deeper into the category of grace than they'd ever gone before. And it was electric. I was reading the book of Romans over and over and again. I mean, to get a 16-year-old to do that, right? That's revival. And, and it was joyous. And it was intense. And there were times people would just break down crying talking about grace. I remember when I was in college, that church went through another revival. As they got involved with the refugee community, specifically at that time, a group of Egyptians that had moved into their neighborhood. I have seen churches go through revivals as they get excited about homeless ministry. I've seen churches go through revivals when in worship they're less concerned about doing everything perfect and everything right, but instead having their hearts in the right place. Revival takes many shapes. But it's this direction here. That after we repent, are we willing to get caught up in revival? And ultimately, are we willing to be a part of the reform movement that John is starting here? And to be clear, John is doing the introductory work of something that Jesus is going to pick up and propel into the future. That only after we repent and we deal with our past, and then only after we are willing to get caught up in this present <laughs> revival, can we start to say... How can we live into a different future? How can we be a part of a reform movement that's going to make things very different in our future? What John says, I have come to baptize with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize with fire. This is a foreshadowing of Pentecost, right? When Jesus, after he's ascended to the Father's right hand, will pour out the Holy Spirit on all believers, and everyone will be possessed with the Holy Spirit. Everyone will be possessed with fire. And Jesus began the greatest reform movement that has ever existed in human history. As Jesus said, I am making all things new. And one of the primary ways that Jesus 
works in our world is through the church. Jesus works through the church. And I'm, I am more positive and enthusiastic and excited about the church than I've ever been in my life. I'm convinced of its goodness, and I'm convinced of everything that the church can do. Now, has the church, has the church made wrongs and done bad things? Well, of course. <coughs> and, and we must repent of those things. And we've named some of those today, and we'll name them again in the future. We must repent. But that can't, that can't take us towards a place where we forget the central role that the church has in our future. Too often, I see people that have a default antagonism towards the church. They're always suspicious of the church, organized religion, or whatever they want to frame it. And they have this default antagonism towards the church because of historic things they believe the church has done wrong. And furthermore, because they look at the posture of Jesus and they say, Jesus was frequently calling out the religious faults, therefore, we need to be frequently calling out the religious faults. And I'm like, that's true. To a point. We need to call out the church when the church is committing wrong. But if we read the gospel, we see that Jesus calls out people when they sin, but he encourages them when they're trying to do right. And when he meets with his disciples, specifically in John 14 through 17, he's encouraging them. And he said, I'm going to send the Spirit, and you're going to do greater things than I've done as you're led by the Holy Spirit. Beautiful, wonderful things are going to happen through the church. <coughs> to accomplish what Jesus wants to do in this world, he needs a group of people that are committed to his vision of the future and who are willing to lay their lives down and do it. Too many, though, in our world have built in this default antagonism towards any type of organized Christian community. And they bake that into the cake. They build that into the foundation. And it's full of cynicism and sarcasm. I have been to functions where it's a contest of who can ridicule the church the most. And there's a time and a place to repent. But at some point, I'm like, Jesus gave his life for the church. And at some point, I'm going to stand up and defend her. Because there's so much good in the church. I had a friend I was talking to recently that said, I'm really concerned about some things going on in our world. And I'm going to start an organization to deal with that. I'm going to get people together. I'm going to get donors. I'm going to get people that will assemble. And then come together to right these wrongs. And I was, I was trying to be encouraging. But I was sitting there thinking. I already belong to one of those organizations. We get together every Sunday. And we meet together. To talk about how to make the world better. According to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And guess what? It's working. It's working. I live in a city where we have so many amazing hospitals, and almost all of them bear Christian names because of the great work of the church. I live in a city with some amazing universities, and almost every single one was begun by church. Sure, the church has done some bad things, and we need to repent of that. 
But I'm pretty big on the church's future. Because the arc of history, if we look at it, Jesus is using the church, and he's begun this reform movement, and our future will be better than our past. Because of what John started, and because of what Jesus has continued. Do you want to be a part of what God is doing in this world? As I consider my life, as I imagine being at the end of my life and looking back on it and thinking, what did I do in my time on this planet to make things better? What did I do during my life to contribute? I want to be able to say, I believe in a God who loved his creation too much to abandon it, entered into it at the incarnation, and sought to make it better. And during my life, fueled by the Spirit, I did everything I could to be a part of that reform movement. Are you ready to join that? It starts with being willing to admit that you're wrong. Being confident that Jesus will forgive you. And then being brave enough to say, I'm going to go deeper. I am willing to go deeper into my faith than I've ever been before. And once we do that, once we do that, things get better. Our families get better. Our churches get better. Our neighborhoods get stronger. Our country gets stronger. And ultimately, our world. This season of Advent, may we commit to that. Let's stand together and sing. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, a podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash Thanks again for joining us. God bless.